And I, I have this thing that I keep repeating on interviews that I have this, what I call a, a paper airplane approach to game design, which is I'm fascinated by the thing I'm doing at the moment. I want to discover new folds and new ways to create a thing. But then I go to the window and make it fly. If someone get, grabs it, unfolds it, learn how, how to do something with it, I'm happy with it. Me, myself, I'm interested in the next thing. I'm grabbing a blank page of paper and I'm starting my new airplane. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow and with me is Cesar Capacle, who is a game designer that is located in the uh, Madeira Islands, and uh, so we're going to get to know uh, how he got there and his history and background into game design. Uh, and he's produced a lot of interesting kind of solo games, minimalist games, and uh, I just find his design aesthetic neat uh, and exciting. So, uh, Cesar, welcome. Thanks, Gary. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you mentioned you like to talk about game design, game design here, and that's absolutely my jam so uh it's a pleasure to be here right on so let's just jump right into it how did you get involved in uh, game design or gaming in general in the first place well uh it's been like nearly 30 years 28 years that i started uh, playing rpgs i started with the uh, first quest it was a, a smaller version of uh, ADD, if i recall correctly and then uh, we moved through the editions of D&D up until the fourth edition. And at this moment, I, uh, I kind of realized that there was this dissonance between my expectations from the game and the stories we told about the game and my experience of the game. So uh, like many other designers, uh, my desire to write a game came from a place of uh, frustration, of not getting from the game you were playing the experiences you, you wanted. So uh, what, what in particular think, were kind of uh, frustrating you about like that process? And I mean, and also, did you mature as a game player? And did that impact your kind of frustration? Yeah, I think so, because when I started, I was the uh, new guy at the table, and uh, I had this uh, weird feeling that uh, the, what the game sold and uh, the, the illustrations and the ambience and everything and what we experienced were, dif were different from each other. But I, uh, I attributed that to my own inexperience as a player. So I said, well, maybe uh, I'm still learning and I don't grasp the rules so well. That's why I'm not enjoying it. Uh, but then the time passed and I realized that was not the problem. I was, oh, you don't have it. And uh, weirdly enough, that's a still an argument we see these days. Oh, you don't enjoy it because uh, you haven't played with me or your DM is not good enough or, oh, it, it depends on the story on the table. But uh, I realized that uh, the rules were driving the game in a direction that I was not invested uh, combat focus, tactical grids, and uh, we couldn't advance the storyline as much, and we didn't have rules to support and inject and strengthen this feeling of playing a story collaboratively. So I said, there, there has to be something out there uh, 
that strips down the things that are getting in the way and uh, focus on the aspects of the game that I enjoy the most. So yeah, I started uh, researching other other games, and uh, that's when I started drafting my own things. It was back in it was like ten years ago, uh, and uh, but all house rules and hacking stuff together just to test with my my friends and pretty much that. That's how I started. And were you in Brazil at this time? Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I didn't mention that I'm Brazilian. Yeah, and uh, there we had uh, we didn't have much access to a lot of stuff. Uh, we had, of course, D and D. We had some Brazilian uh, systems and games that were not very uh, easily available because they didn't have mass production or anything. I I never up until like five six years ago because the price of them and uh, the accessibility of them. And at this point, we had a very cool uh, RPG magazine that we would buy on newsstands. And they published like a smaller RPG systems that were fit into a magazine that uh, allowed us to play different uh, styles of game and everything. So uh, reading through this magazine, I got to learn that uh, there were like, at the point, dozens of systems now i know that there are thousands of systems but uh it was very eye-opening so i said well okay i don't need to be stuck at this one thing and uh, when i had uh, better access to the internet and everything and forums and i started researching and then i came across a lot of minimalist systems i fell in love with them and i started creating my own you remember one or two in particular that you went oh like, I really just love how that system worked. Yeah. yeah, two of them right, that I recall very vividly. There was uh, Free Farm Universal by Nathan Russell and Rises. Uh, those were freely available online, and they had this approach of uh, removing all the clanky stuff and all the crunch and focus on having uh, streamlined character creation and uh, I story. And so I read that and uh, it was like they gave me this authorization to write games that didn't need lots of fiddly bits. And uh, it was revealing for me. I, I still today refer them when I'm uh, trying to get on this minimalist mindset as well. So uh, they're very good games up until today, I, I believe. Yeah, and I love those too. And in particular, uh... I noticed that you named one of your games uh, or like were inspired by the FKR movement, which is very much in line with Rises and FU and a, a number of other systems that are out there. Uh, was that uh, like, are you an FKR fan? I am personally, and I'd, I've had Jim Parkin on here talking about FKR. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, and uh, I am, uh, I have mixed feelings about FKR. Uh, when one point I adore the style of play of, uh, you know, uh, creating rules as you needed. And uh, that's usually how I introduce uh, people to RPGs. My nephews and nieces, they, they played with me like that. I, I grabbed, what kind of dice do you have here? Oh, I have this two cards. Okay, let's hit here. And impromptu creating uh, rules and everything. Uh, the thing that I uh, deviate a little bit from the FKR is uh, the, that uh, it gives too much power to the referee, at least how it's written on their manifests and everything. So uh, if the same manifest 
I could like search and replace, you know, the, the, uh, the referee and change it for the group, I would be uh, much more comfortable with the initiative because I do believe that this kind, I, I create GMless games and uh, solo games uh, as standard. And I do believe this kind of uh, more shared responsibilities and authority is something that resonates with uh, my style of game design and gameplay. So uh, uh, this game that you mentioned, I was talking about someone, uh, does anyone have any idea how to play an FKR game uh, using rock, paper, scissors? And uh, in Brazil, we uh, refer to rock, paper, scissors by the Japanese name, Jekimpo. So it's JKP. So I said, well, okay, FKR and JKP, I'll smash those two acronyms together and that became the, the, the game. So uh, it was a group chat. And I replied with a message. I think you could do like that. When I sent the message, I thought, huh, that's a game. <laughs> that's a game I just created in this message. So I went ahead and said, okay, you know what? I, I'm going to give this, give this a format on Canva and I'll send you. And I did. And then I said, oh, okay, uh, this deserves a release. And uh, it became an actual game with and a solo rules and uh, uh, an oracle and everything but it started as a provocation by a, a, a friend of mine in a, in a group chat and leading into that um the push srd or the push game mechanics had, when did you first kind of stumble across that mechanic and what inspired it and how did you evolve that into what you're using today and other people are using as well yeah so push started as a tweet <laughs> back in October last year, I, uh, I was inspired by this, what if, my game design is very, very what if inspired, right? So it was, what if Blackjack, but with a D6? I was listening to someone talking about uh, uh, a mechanic. There was a roll under mechanic, you know? Uh, but there are a few games that you have or that you want to roll as high as you can, but still below your target number. So this is kind of blackjack, right? You, you want to get high, but you don't want to get over that limit. And I was listening to that, but I thought, well, the, the most interesting thing, at least for me regarding blackjack, is that you can choose to push your luck and try to get a higher number. So I thought, can I do that? with a D6. So, and then I scratched a little piece of paper and I had this random idea for a, a mechanic resolution that's a, you are granted a partial success when you roll, but if you want to go for a full success, you run the risk of going over and then having a failure. And I tweeted, and it got a lot of traction, a lot of interest. And people say, hey, man, you need to, to create a game around it and everything. I said, OK, I'll let it sit a bit and uh, see what kinds of things I want to, to say with this mechanic. Because I think what justified writing SRD is not only I, I have an interesting conflict resolution mechanic. OK, this, this is fine, but this is not enough for at least for me to justify creating an SRD. I had things I wanted to say beyond mere uh, conflict resolution mechanic. 
regarding my philosophies of game design, at least at that point, right? Always mutating, but uh, regarding GMless play, uh, regarding no attributes or modifiers to your role, uh, regarding impromptu uh, anti-canon narratives, and uh, those things combined, and I made use of this uh, this mechanic that was, I thought was interesting in and of itself. So it justified creating an SRD that uh, corroborates lots of things that I I had been thinking about game design for a moment, for a long time actually, and uh, I could offer not only uh, an SRD with rules but a guide. If you read through the, the push SRD, there is a step-by-step -step guide on how you can create your own game. So first you do that, first you do that. Because uh, I thought it wasn't enough to say, oh, here's some rules and character creation. Now go, choo-choo, go make your game. Now, here, step-by-step, -step, even offering a two-page template. If you can only fill in the blanks. Now there's a zine template, it's a 24-page zine template. You can just replace the paragraphs and uh, bits and pieces and you have your own game. And uh, the result was that people resonated with this, uh, this idea, so much so that we have now more than 60 games created with this system. So yeah, that was a surprisingly good, really. It was, it was very fun to, to create this SRD and uh, seeing people embracing it and bending it to, to their wills. Uh, it, was, it was a very fascinating experience. Really. And I noticed uh, recently uh, One Night World by Brian Hazard. Uh, he has a, a Kickstarter going on right now with uh, like kind of one page worlds. And so that seems to be going well for him. And he uses the SRD, the push SRD. Um, and you also have been using the push SRD in your own games um, that beyond just the, the SRD itself. Uh, can you just talk about how since you created the SRD or the push system, or is that now your go-to that you, as soon as you start designing a game for the most part, like your bigger game that you go, that's what I want to use? I would like to say it is, but it isn't. <laughs> uh, and I, I have this thing I, I keep repeating on interviews that I have this, what I call a, a paper airplane approach to game design, which is I'm fascinated by the thing I'm doing at the moment. I want to discover new folds and new ways to create a thing. But then I go to the window and make it fly. If someone get, grabs it, unfolds it, learn how, how to do something with it, I'm happy with it. Me, myself, I'm interested in the next thing. I'm grabbing a blank page of paper and I'm starting my new airplane. So uh, for my next games, I have, actually, I do have two push powered games that are in development around, I want to say 60 to 80% complete that have twists to the, the mechanics to keep me, myself, interested in exploring the mechanic. But I'm moving past it and I have like, I have 21 games in different stages of development at, the, at this moment and only two use the, the push system. So yeah, but I did, I did uh, created some games with it. Uh, and the last one that, that I released, uh, that's What Lies Beneath the Darkness, already has some changes. I inserted it, since it's a, like a dark fantasy, gas lamp fantasy game, I inserted a sort of a corruption system 
with it without, you know, compromising the core beliefs of the system, but there is this extra bit of flavor to, to kind of lean towards the themes that I wanted to explore with this game. And you uh, mentioned uh, what lies beneath the darkness. And uh, when I was reviewing it and looking through it, I noticed that you used a Wombo Dream uh, AI for, for the graphics. And you've also previously mentioned that you use uh, Canva. Can you just maybe walk us through like your experience so far with uh, AI um, art and uh, also just your process for your own design and how you, how you create? Right, let's start with the AR. AI art, because this is a touchy subject at the moment and everyone's talking about it. And uh, I certainly still don't have a clear uh, position because we don't know how much impact this will cause. But so far I have used AI in a couple of games, uh, but those AIs, they were before those uh, diffusion models that uh, kind of replicate styles and uh, that kind of thing. So Wombo is, you clearly see there's not an artist that's doing that. It's sort of abstractish. Uh, and uh, it gives a, a very particular vibe. So there was one. Scraps, I used Art Reader that does some sort of landscape designs that also are not based on uh, specific styles and everything. So those are the ones that, that I'd explored. Now, there has been some backlash regarding art, uh, the indie designers using AI. And I have to say, I'm still forming my position. I understand when they say that it shouldn't replace a, uh, an artist, a commissioned artist. But for us in the global South, uh, that, uh, that's not a ch uh, choice between commissioning art or AR, AI art. It's a choice between AI art or no art or public domain images. So I kind of feel that people saying, oh, this is gross, indie designers using AI, they should be commissioning. They are speaking from a position of privilege, you know? Just because we can't afford uh, uh, an artist, I don't think Global South designers shouldn't be allowed to have evocative books and uh, be part of this thing. So uh, I'm still, you know, tiptoeing around to see what does this means for indie artists? I, I can't say for as an indie artist, I'm not, so I can't, uh, it's not my place to talk about how much this will impact their lives, but I can't talk how much this will impact the lives of indie designers. So uh, I release a game, I'm, and this is my full-time job. I'm aiming at making after taxes and cuts and everything around, I don't know, $300. If I would pay for a cover artist and 10 illustrations, I would starve and don't pay rent. So uh, I think people that are complaining about indie designers using it, I have to keep in mind that some of those were not in the position of a privileged position of the white North to be able to, I oh, you know oh, I have a, my home brew DMV campaign. I'm going to commission four different artists to draw my character because I'm so excited. Okay, I get it. You have the money, have fun. That's so far off the reality we live here. So I think the people that are using it, uh, they have this kind of justification, but I'm still making up my mind regarding what I, I'm going to do next, because so far now, going to the, the rest of your question, what I do is I use public domain images and uh, 
art uh, from stock art from Canva that uh, is since I have a subscription I have access to. But you don't you, you can't expect to you know uh, create a game and then find art that resonates with that particular view of your game. Most of the times, if you want to have a cohesive experience of art and uh, game, you create games around the art that you are able to find. You know, so uh, it's, uh, I've been doing this for quite a while now and uh, actually using this as one of those self-imposed constraints, you know, uh, instead, of, instead of starting from a blank, blank page, you have, okay, this is the art that I have available for me now. What can I make out of it? You know what I mean? So uh, uh, Kismet, I did like this. Uh, Starlight Riders, I did like this. So I am a very visual uh, designer. And uh, oddly enough, I start most of my games by the cover. Sometimes I don't even know what the game is going to be about. Sometimes I don't even know the title, but when I'm designing the cover, I get this mood of the themes and it gets me this headspace for this particular game. And uh, then I find it easier to, to come with the rules and the themes and the mood that fit that, that the kind of style that I envision with the cover. I even do mock-ups of the, the, the games that I, uh, I'm just starting. The first thing I do, I do a cover, I do a mock-up and I see it as a, a finished product and I have my mind in this kind of uh, theme. And uh, I've been using Canva, which is weird, publishers that uh, rarely when I get to actually have physical copies of my games published, they want to kill me because <laughs> I use Canva because, you know, it's not uh, uh, InDesign or what's the other one that people use, no? Um, I think Affinity. Affinity, uh, Affinity, yeah. It's not made for that, but the thing is, it's super cheap for me and I have 3 million stock images and uh, 10 million icons and elements that I can use. Not the templates, I don't like the templates, but the individual icons and the photos and the effects and the fonts, they're all bundled together there. So I have this, it's quite snappy to, to create things using Canva and it's very cheap and affordable. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, I go to Canva, I lay out a, a sort of a cover art create a mock-up, and then I get my mind into, into the game design aspect. And you, I, I saw on your YouTube channel, which I'll put links to, as well as all your Patreon, your Twitter, and uh, itch um, uh, pages, but I saw on Canva, or sorry, on YouTube, that you did a video on how you do uh, mock-ups of book covers. So I thought that was nice that you're sharing out uh, a little bit of your, your insider secrets to people if they want to learn from it and make their own kind of flip pages or just mock-ups so that was i thought nice of you to share a bit of your wisdom so I'll, yeah i'll put a link to there as well above yeah that's good uh, lots of people asked me how i did and i used only free software so i said well why not share it so yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I use, uh, um, you know, my background is in graphic design and I use InDesign, but it's funny, I've actually gone into Canva to steal some of their clip art uh, or not clip art <laughs> or stock art or whatever the case might be. And I'll just, I'll use it and I'll export it out <laughs> from Canva just so I can get access to it uh, and put it into InDesign. So it's, 
it's a interesting tool if you can manipulate it and do what you want. But I can imagine some of the print publishers are going like, oh, this PDF is a mess <laughs> or not, not the way we yeah. want it. Yeah, bleeds and uh, the, the kind of thing. I actually have to do it manually. Like I, I do the page and I put guides to, to mark oh. the bleed. But so far, I, uh, my publishing process is uh, I uh, offer the PDF on each together with a net cost coupon for the, the print on demand. So I don't get any money from the physical uh, books, but I realize people want to maybe want to have them. So yeah, I'm making money out of the PDFs and as a courtesy, here's the, the coupon. And I use Lulu for most of them. And uh, I had no trouble whatsoever exporting my PDFs from Canva and importing to Lulu. Uh, so yeah, it works, kind of works. <laughs> and uh, not that we don't need to know the hard figures or anything like that, but I, I'm just kind of curious, like you mentioned, like, you know, digital versus print and, and all that kind of stuff. And also different platforms. Like I noticed uh, your uh, business or your business name, not a giraffe studio on drive through RPG, but uh, you know, you go under your name for itch. And how do you kind of like, how did you arrive at this kind of um, system where like, where you, where do you place your games? Where do you get the most bang for your buck? Um, I also even noticed, uh, I had not heard of it before, but uh, the PNP arcade uh, was also another site that you have your games on it, which I had never heard of before. And there's a handful of like really good games on there. Can you just talk us through the steps in discovering where it works for you? Sure, sure, of course. So uh, when I first started discovering that uh, a lot of games out there existed, my first place was Drive Through RPG. I think it's the largest store uh, still up to this day, and it was an obvious choice when I started publishing my own things to go there. So uh, my first game was in Portuguese, of course, but I thought, why not? I don't have anything to lose. I uh, the first game I published, I did, I laid out on Google Slides. And uh, I exported a PDF and uh, created an account on Drive-Thru RPG and put it there, let's pay what you want. And I saw like 50 downloads and I said, oh my God, this is awesome. So it was my go-to Drive-Thru RPG. I haven't, hadn't even heard of itch.io at that point. Uh, then was, uh, there was this jam on itch called Your Move. It was made by... Vincent Baker, I guess it was 2018, I guess. And somebody on a Facebook group, a PBTA Facebook group in Brazil, shared this jam. It was a jam to make a game using only one move. For people familiar with the PBTA, they're based on moves and everything. And I said, oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, where is it? Oh, it's an itch. Okay, let me find out what it is. So I created a game for it. It's a drift. It's a game you play as an astronaut uh, lost in space and you're going to die and you have to make peace with this fact. And uh, to submit the game to the gem, I had to create uh, an edge page. And when I did, boy, what a relief. Uh, the difference in uh, adjusting a page and publishing a game on edge comparing to the backend of drive-through RPG. Oh my God, it was okay, this is nice, this makes sense, the, like the forms are kind of in an order, they're not super ugly and weird to understand. But what I realized very quickly was how welcoming the community was on each, 
to experimental minimal games. And uh, there are people commenting on the games on the jam and like indie designers supporting each other, reviewing, sharing each other's games. And I said, okay, this looks like an environment that I'd be interested in engaging with much more so than drive-through RPG that it feels to me like more traditional, full-fledged, 200-page games, although they're, of course, most of the, the minimal games are also there. But there's this feeling of uh, proximity, like you and the person that purchases and the people, the other people that publish games are more connected to each other. We can like make bundles together, make game jams, talk on the, the, the forums and everything. So uh, I thought it was more, more welcoming. And the fact that I could uh, customize my page to showcase my game was a game changer. So I uh, quickly start shifting towards itch. And in this shift, I decided to drop my studio name. So I created this Not A Giraffe Studio, which is a name I really like, although super silly. And I, th I thought of this name in English, even though I was publishing in Portuguese first, because I said, well, when I publish in English, it would be easier for people to, to, to pronounce. But then I abandoned it because of this personal aspect that H gave and uh, uh, because of the personal aspect of Twitter uh, on which I uh, promote my games mostly. So I decided to have myself as the brand, which in hindsight, with a name that hard to pronounce, <laughs> might not be the, <laughs> the best choice. But I, uh, I felt that I needed to make my games more human so when you go to my page, it's me, my face there. So, uh, and, and my games are more personal, I think, right? And they're this kind of uh, intimate feeling that you get. And I wanted this to be experienced by people who bought and played my games. So I shift towards itch. And then PNP Arcade actually, uh, uh, what's his name? James, Jake, Jim. A J name uh, from PNP Arcade approached me. He had heard about my games uh, and uh, offered me the opportunity to publish it there too. And PNP Arcade is awesome. It's a very nice place to explore. They have all kinds of games, not only tabletop RPGs, but card games and everything that you can play, uh, print and play at home. And uh, it's been great. Uh, he's a super nice guy. I have to get his name correctly because <laughs> this is not good for me. But uh, uh, most of my sales, my revenue, and uh, Jason, Jason Greeno, that's it. That's his name. Most of my revenue comes from actually from each by far, like 20 times more. Of course, uh, I when I promote my games, I link I link it to, to itch, which is, uh, uh, of course, uh, responsible for most of the results. Since the search engine for itch is kind of broken, I can see that more people find me using Google than using the search engine on itch. But anyways, it, it's been working. I like the, 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 the aspect of itch. I don't like some parts of it, but mostly I'm a, I'm a fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Itch myself. The uh, problem is the discoverability of your games. And I often go, boy, I really wish they would just carve off a tabletop role-playing game section so that it's just 
just that because you get caught in all sorts of other things that I don't even know what they right? are. <laughs> but, yeah, if you could filter game jams that are for physical games, that would yeah. be awesome too, but it can't. It's hard. And, and speaking of physical games, I've noticed uh, in a lot of your designs, um, especially in the, uh, uh, the uh, Starlight Riders game, uh, that your use of cards where it almost melds with a tabletop game. Um, and maybe can you talk about like how you arrived at like making that kind of system work and like why it's so beneficial to kind of have that mix of uh, cards and written game? Right. Of course, uh, I love cards and I think they are still underused in uh, role playing games. And I don't mean necessarily using a standard deck of cards for resolution or for prompts uh, uh, for journaling games. I mean custom cards, uh, even if uh, we use like index cards and blank cards to create things and use it at the table. And why is that? I actually have like, I think five or six games that are card based and that there is two aspects of it. Three, maybe. The visual aspect, you can have a, a second clue or a second reminder of the kind of feeling you're going with uh, for your character, for your actions, for the items, for everything. There is the tactile aspect of uh, if you have, instead of a character sheet, you have a character deck and you go through the things you have, your inventory or your weapons, your skills and everything, and you can handle them at the table, this physical aspect of moving things around, I think helps, uh, especially people who have never played before, have a sense of what you can do at, at what point. And uh, the third thing is that you can uh, pass things around more easily. So Mole Mole, for instance, it's another game that the, uh, the book is a deck of cards. So the whole game is fit in uh, 36 cards. And uh, you have tables for generators or for uh, oracles and everything for uh, setting creation or for character creation. And what you can do is you grab the card, it, since it's a jamless game, and when it's time for someone else to use, you just pass this card. When you use the character creation cards, you put them away on, a, on the box and you have just the, the cards in front of you that you're going to use during play. So this uh, uh, dynamic aspect of cards is fascinating to me. And I think we're scratching the surface on how much we can uh, expand the, uh, the experience of being around the table, being that virtual or physical using cards as a mechanic for role play, even to, to introduce uh, more story-driven aspects, not only mechanical, because people say, oh, this is going to become a card game or a, a board game. And I disagree. Sometimes when you have, like for, for instance, on Starlight Writers, what I created is a three-act structure for a heist, right? So you have, I had to go through, what's the name of this, the website? TV Tropes and yeah. dissecate how a heist works in fiction and everything. So it's three acts for this one, the preparation, the heist and the escape. And uh, you 
insert the obstacles and the complications with the card. So something bad happens, you split the cards and insert another obstacle in the middle. If one of your characters is captured, you can insert insert a character card by the end of the, the game so you can rescue your character. So it's a, a visual prompt for how your storyline develops. So uh, I find this fascinating. I think uh, we can make use of those, those dynamics much more. Of course, there is the problem of uh, you don't only need a PDF and some dice, right? For a standard game, you download the PDF and learn the rules and you jump on, I don't know, roll 20 or you grab your friends around the table, and roll some dice and that's okay, pen and paper. Cards introduce either uh, another purchase or printing them at home or transporting them to a VTT. So there is this kind of obstacle, but I've been seeing some solutions and I have to mention screentop.gg as one of my favorite ones to implement, to easily implement uh, card-based uh, games and play with uh, people online very easily and uh, for free at the moment. There, there will be pro uh, subscriptions later, but uh, yeah, I'm super inspired by cards. I, I can't stop thinking about card-based games. I'm, I have two, three on the works. So uh, if you uh, if you think if you're thinking that uh, I, you want to make a, a, a role playing game with cards, but felt intimidated that it wouldn't feel as role playing games, scratch that. It's absolutely a tool in favor of role play as I as I see it. Yeah, I uh, recently was in uh, Gen Con, and uh, that was my first Gen Con that I had gone to, and. Um, the, my kind of one of the main takeaways I brought with me was the fact that some of the most creative work is taking place in the board game world. And, and maybe that doesn't come as a surprise, but I, I kind of same as you went, boy, like I, there's a lot more that should be added into role-playing games that we could learn from the board game creators um, in, in trying to bridge that. And also I mean, I love tabletop role-playing games. I think it's the best hobby in the world. And I always find uh, board games a little bit stifling. And I would love to see uh, board game players lean more into tabletop role-playing games. But it, it seems to be like it's either or. Like, I mean, there's always crossover. But there's a huge, huge market of, I think, role, uh, board game players that just need a taste of role-playing games in order to get in there. And what better way to get them into the market than to have board game elements that they're familiar with and they can kind of lean into and, and go, oh, yeah, yeah, actually this tabletop role-playing game stuff isn't too uh, too hard after all. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think we have a lot to learn and uh, there is this, I don't know if it's a resistance or just a habit of assuming things about role-playing games. It's, it's an incomplete game uh, per definition. Like it only exists outside of the material that it comes that's it's very weird to think about it right uh, the role-playing game is a game that exists outside the physical support of the the game itself right you start playing when you put aside the thing where the game is and i don't think that should be the case necessarily i think we could have tangible and meaningful not only for the the sake of existing meaningful for a story and for a, a plot-driven gameplay 
that you can actually handle and uh, the tactile aspect of it and import different mechanics that merge interesting strategical uh, choices together with interest, interesting story choices, narrative choices. And you already kind of touched on um, solo gaming or GM-less games, but maybe we can just dive into that, you know, before we, I know we're kind of running low on time, but an interesting topic, a lot of your games are solo games and um, like Run, which is like a, a slasher solo game. And what appeals to you about like solo games? Like a lot of your games are kind of driven in that direction. And like, do you, do you find that it's, role-playing games can be a more solitary um, activity or is it just that you find that it's more creative if you can actually make the person do it themselves? Right. Fascinating question because uh, uh, I could, uh, <laughs> we could have a, an interview only about that, but uh, I'll try to be brief. I talk a lot and have noticed. Uh, I think one of my approaches of game design is I think we should approach designing our games as GM-less games, even when our games have a GM. And I came to that re realization after I uh, studied Iron Sworn. Iron Sworn is a game that you can play solo, uh, co-op without a GM, or guided with a GM. But in order for it to work solo, the game itself has to provide mechanics and a structure that fills in the gaps of what an intelligent being would do on a traditional game. And uh, I think when we started from uh, a game design approach that there will be a knowledgeable person that has this baggage of experience that will adjudicate things that are not clear or things that are, uh, I don't know, more important that I didn't write for, we kind of cut us short from the get-go, right? Oh, okay, How, when does this apply? Oh, your GM will tell. Uh, when does a complication arise? Oh, your G GM will tell. Oh, how much experience points? No, GM will tell. And the enemies, GM will tell. Okay, what, what will you will tell me then. <laughs> what do you tell me then? Nothing. Ah, I give a setting, character creation. Here is a, a storage uh, adventure generator. And the rest, the GM will tell. So what I like to do for my approach, and that's why I think solo games are so appealing to me, is I, I like the uh, procedural approach to game design because I think this is not only... Uh, easier to be played solo, but it's also more accessible for people that never played. It's less intimidating if you actually take them by the hand and go, okay, you're going to do this, and then you do that, and then you do that. This is the loop, and you start over. When you first see something like that in a role-playing game, if you come from a traditional perspective, you feel that you're kind of turning it into a board game of sorts, but that's not my experience at all. My running games like Push that are very clear structured on a, a predictive kind of a gameplay look, very procedural. The stories that arise are as interesting, if not more interesting, because you made sure to inject mechanics that add complication and steps and webs and the ebbs and flows of a narrative 
for it to be experienced in full. So uh, I like to approach my games, but with a GMless perspective by this reason, mostly because I want uh, to create mechanics that grant that people that will play will have the experience I intended for the game, not relying on someone that knows the tropes or the baggage of being a GM to actually make my game run. I, I would feel cheating, like I, I'm selling you a computer, but the only way you have to use this computer if you hire a technician to explain to you and to connect the dots that I didn't do the job for. So I like to provide this kind of structure for uh, people to approach it even without a previous experience. And the second thing is I was a very lazy GM and I had a very hard time uh, being the all-known being with all the knowledge, the responsibility to drive the story forward, the authority to decide with uh, whether something belongs to the, the, the world or not, whether a rule applies or not. And I like to dilute it to everyone around. We have a really hard time with authority as humans. So when you have this figure of authority, it's easier for players to be in that position of testing how much they can challenge their authority so that brings about those kinds of DM versus player situations. And if you scan the forums of people searching for uh, advice on how to run tables or how to deal with players, I bet you none of those things would happen if they were playing a game in which the authority and the responsibility were homogeneous or, or, or among everyone. So uh, by taking down this person that holds this place of authority and leveling the field, people are more invested in, in creating complications for their own stories and putting their, their players and their characters into danger because they know they're in control. So uh, that fascinates to me. My, maybe if I have an interview with you in five years, I might change my mind. But for now, what I'm really interested and invested is in those this kinds of experiences that GMless play provide. Well, it's definitely a fascinating subject. Um, I've interviewed uh, Deborah from Geek Gamers and, and her book, uh, The Solo RPG, um, her GMless games. And one of the things that I and maybe you have the answer to this. One of the things that I keep wondering about is how you can evoke that emotion um, and actually have like a moving experience in a solo game. Like you would read a book where, you know, some people can be brought to tears or be afraid. How can you achieve that in a solo game? And I know, and I don't, I haven't looked through it uh, too much, but your one uh, game where you explore your dreams, can you just, is that potentially something? It, it made me think that, uh, that it might be yeah. one of those games that you could achieve that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, uh, that's the weird thing for people that never played solo games to, to kind of, like, how can I be surprised? How can I be invested in something that I'm creating both ends of, uh, of the story, right? But uh, when you have uh, technologies in place to kind of uh, secondhand creativity to prompt generators or oracles or those kinds of rules, you'd be amazed at how much you can be surprised by the things that come out. And uh, if you've been following gameplays, uh, actual plays online on YouTube of people playing solo, you can see that spark on their eyes. That's this 
almost the same as when a GM reveals a big plot. When you yourself understand how things that that the, the dice or you yourself decided and how they connect, you have this one. Oh, this is what's happening, right? So, uh, but for my uh, my game that I uh, I play, uh, you explore your dreams. This is a very different approach because you actually play this game while you are asleep. So that was my approach to gamifying lucid dreaming. And the game is called Neuronaut. And uh, I started my, my uh, first provocation was if you can play a solo game anywhere, can you play a solo game while you're asleep? So I started investigating lucid dreaming. This is a practice that people do that you uh, kind of realize you're dreaming, but you don't wake up. So you kind of take control. If you take control of your dream, you can create the most, the richest scenarios for a role-playing game, I thought. So I said, oh, I can capitalize on that. So I uh, kind of designed a layer of fantasy on top of it. It's like a, a, a war between two entities based on Amazonian myths. And you are a soldier of one of these sides. So you have to complete certain tasks to assert dominance over the dreamers. And this is a thing that uh, uh, people have reported back to me that they found extremely liberating. Even, uh, oh, I slept better because now I have a routine uh, to, you know, relax before I, I sleep and put some kind of meditation music on and actually journal after what I wake up. So encourage this kind of... Uh, good habits that uh, enhance their creativity. So uh, I made this game because I had this idea and there was a, a I wanted this game to exist. <laughs> you know, I, I, I thought, well, okay, maybe no one will ever play that, but that's okay. I need this idea to exist in the world. There is, now I can say there is a game, there is an RPG that you play while <laughs> you're asleep. So I made it, and uh, surprisingly enough, a lot of people uh, liked it. It's one of our best sellers up until this point. And uh, people reported back playing this for like nine months in a row, even playing cooperatively, if you can believe that. They awarded them extra points if they dreamed about the same thing. And uh, yeah, so yeah, that, that super crazy. So, uh, But that, that's my jam, doing those quirky weird things well and then uh, just as we close out you have a ton of other just kind of fun quirky games cows versus zombies mole dot mole um uh, people places and perils which is like uh has kind of wander home vibes to it and uh and all of those can be found on your patreon and uh you know we talked a little bit before uh we came on the air here today about uh, like in my experience, I found Patreon, like the idea of Patreon, very like suffocating where I was like, oh boy, I have to produce something by the end of the month or whatever the case might be, where you feel like there's that pressure on you. How do you kind of deal with that from a game designer perspective? Because you do, uh, Patreon's probably um, a nice steady uh, income if you're a full-time game designer. How do you, how do you balance it all? Yes, excellent question. I, uh, that's my second take on Patreon, like uh, subscription-based uh, support. When I first started as a full-time game designer, I had a buy me a coffee page, which was similar, but I made a mistake to like have 
10 different tiers and different rewards for each of those tiers. I promised a game, a different game or supplement every other week. And although I can create things really fast, I, I usually take one week to write a, a whole game, write, design and publish. The thing was, I, I was offering games every other week, but I wasn't creating the, this kind of community with people. And I had just started. So I uh, had like seven supporters, seven backers back in the day. And uh, the result I was getting back, not only financially, but when uh, this exchange of ideas, this sort of a shared experience was not satisfying. And I thought that publishing my games only on itch was better. I reached many more people. People reached out to me to talk about the games. And I said, well, the thing I wanted from, from Buy Me A Coffee, I'm getting from Mitch. So I scratched that. Fast forward a month ago, and I uh, calculated all my expenses and everything. And I decided that if I, had, if I couldn't double my income by the end of the year, I had to like find a, a real job and stop making my stuff. So I uh, reached out to the community and said, hey, you like what I do. Do you want me to keep doing what I do? So here's the thing. I'm putting out this Patreon. I'm not committing to a schedule of release. It's five bucks, a single tier, what you get. All my future releases for free. Five of my previous games you can choose. I have 20 games out. And you get to vote on what's going next. Share. I can share my game design process with you. You get behind the scenes things, work in progress, progress and uh, this sort of my ideas, my speculations and my tips and tricks of how to create your own games. So every week I post, uh, if I don't post a new release as I did last week I did, I post uh, a progress on a game I'm doing together with a reflection on game design aspects that can be helpful for other people that are interested in that. Maybe not making games, but understanding their own games or how they enjoy their own games. So uh, that resonated more with people. So I have 70 something backers now, supporters now, uh, which is awesome, but I'm still far from my goal, but I'm getting there hopefully. And now that I removed this pressure of having a release every other week and also managing lots of tiers and lots of different perks and everything, it was mo much more honest with my process. So here's what I do. Here are people that like what I do. They want to support me. They're here just to make sure I keep doing this and enjoying the process together with me. So I have this feeling when I'm posting on Patreon that I'm talking to a small community of people that enjoy the things I do. And uh, this has been much better than what I would expect because it's, it flows naturally. As you can see, I love talking about game design. I could talk for hours. So having uh, like an audience to, to share your insights, your uh, reflections, and having them feed you back with their insights is being is being invaluable. So yeah, it can be done if if you are on this mind space of doing a thing that you would do uh, normally and uh, sharing with people that are interested in in talking to you about. Well, that's great. And uh, as I mentioned in the show notes uh, of the podcast and on the the description in the YouTube video, we'll have all the links 
uh, let's get as many people as we can to uh, follow you on Patreon or back you on Patreon and, uh, and uh, so that you can keep doing what you're doing, which is really designing some cool games. So uh, I, I really like what you're doing. So, um, you know, hopefully we can see even more in the future. And uh, so with that said, I just want to say, you know, thank you for joining us today and sharing a bit of your wisdom and your background and uh, your approach to game design and, uh, you know, wish you all the best in the future. It's a lot, Gary. It's been a pleasure. Uh, love to talk to you and uh, I love to talk about game design. So yeah, anytime. <laughs>